Happy Halloween from the Go Dig a Hole podcast. This is a special double header feature uh, that features both episodes 81 and 82 all in one place. So if you've already listened to them individually, you probably don't need to listen to this one. But if you're hungry for all of it in one place, then uh, here you are. So, uh, yeah, this is going to be a, a long one, but it, it features uh, Travis Corwin sharing some stories about um, haunting as a uh, concept in archaeology to relate uh, colonial violence. Um, a very scary story about uh, an archaeological site in Florida. Uh, and also folk horror and uh, zines and, and uh, B-horror movies. Uh, and then on episode 82, the second half of this um, double feature, uh, we have Annalise Bear uh, sharing a real live ghost story and um, a, a story about a, a very spooky shrine. It's, a, it's an ancient shrine in a sacred grove of oak trees uh, in the Albanian mountains. Uh, so it's uh, all, all of these are really fun. Uh, and so we had had a good time. Um, but yeah, so uh, just because uh, of, you know, everybody's busy schedules, it's, it's just me uh, talking to Travis and Annalise. But uh, we have some more episodes coming up soon. And um, yeah, so enjoy. If you dig what we're doing, uh, you can go to uh, patreon.com that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash go dig a hole uh, and you can uh, subscribe we've got a little uh, thank you stuff to give to uh, all of our supporters we really appreciate everybody who's uh, supported us in the past and still do um, it's it's meant a lot to us and it's, it's helped us keep the show going um, and if you're not able to support on Patreon. Uh, it helps us out a ton if you give us a five-star rating on uh, Apple Podcast, uh, if you subscribe on SoundCloud, uh, or if you just share the podcast with uh, your your friends, your dig partners, your classmates, um, your students, whatever. Uh, it means a lot. So uh, yeah, thanks and happy Halloween. You've got some questions. Got it You're feeling stressed, man. Got it all right oh, this so you, is you get awesome. to watch you get to watch city of the dead um during this <laughs> this podcast recording and zoom meeting um, oh that's awesome it's 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 good folk horror it is a graduate student has to go is going it goes to a small town that has a bunch of history of witches and she's researching it for like i don't know either like an anthropology thing or just a history class yeah um, and then she dies it's classic and then people have to go find her but it's christopher lee is in it watched it the other day and i was like fuck yeah that's awesome uh, this is this is great. This is like a whole new level of podcasting that I, I didn't know I needed, but um, here we are. And now I'm like, huh, maybe this is the nudge I need to make the jump to video.
I mean, it might be. <laughs> it could be. Uh, it's, it's probably distracting because you're, I can only imagine watching it. I'm watching it not only on my laptop, but I'm also watching myself being recorded in the Zoom with the movie projected behind me. <laughs> and it's, it's a little bit too much. <laughs> um, I think it's I just the like, right amount. Yeah. Here we go. Okay, I've I've made this thing smaller so I can only see you. So that's probably better. Um, nice. Let me see how far can I go over. Yeah, perfect. As much as the movie as you can get. Yeah, that's perfect. Right. Yeah. So, um, in terms of uh, the podcast, it's pretty free form. Um, in the Discord, you were, um, you know, you initially mentioned that you didn't have. Um, any spooky stories, but you do have a lot of thoughts on ghosts and haunting and horror in archaeology. Um, and then you shared that you had a, a story from Florida that sounded like legit terrifying. So um, it's, yeah, it's insane. Yeah. I don't really have any structure. I'm totally game <laughs> to just like go free form, however you want to go. Do you want to start yeah. off by introducing yourself? Oh yeah, I'll introduce myself, or maybe the podcast host introduced me, but I think I'll introduce myself. I don't know. What, <laughs> I don't know podcast decorum. Um, There's no decorum. Yeah. There's no sense of decorum <laughs> on this podcast. <laughs> That's true. I've listened to it enough to know that. Um, yeah, my name is Travis Corwin. Um, I'm a field archaeologist in the, the southeast, though the nature of the game is I am kind of thrown everywhere. Um, and I just love Halloween <laughs> and archaeology. And what, what more do I need? What, what, what more credentials do I need to be on this episode? I'm wearing my Halloween vest, little, the, the 90s mom Halloween vest. Oh, it's perfect. I'm, I'm, drinking an, I'm drinking an old pal, which is a Campari-based cocktail. So it's, it's red like blood. It's also called an old pal. This is very Hannibal Lecter. I'm having an old pal for dinner. There we go. Oh, I love it. Yeah, you what? were kidding when you were saying, hold on, I'm setting the mood. Like, you've got a, a horror oh, I... movie going on in the background. You've got your 90s mom Halloween vest. You're drinking an old pal. We're ready. You know, when I, when I was supposed to be preparing things to talk about and getting better at telling that story of Little Salt Spring, uh... I didn't do any of that. I was too busy trying to figure out what costume I was going to wear for the Halloween episode, um, <laughs> what drink I was going to drink, and how I was going to have a horror movie projected behind me during this entire call. You nailed it. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, I had, a, I had a busy day. I was on like a bunch of phone calls. But yeah, so. We've got a horror movie going. And uh, you've got a terrifying tale to regale us with of a, uh, a spring in Florida. Um, I, I don't want to give anything away. I, I know you've got um, some bits and, and just like, this sounds terrifying. So, <laughs> yeah. So this is a story that I've been told by a couple of coworkers who are, I think, who, you know, are very deep in Florida archaeology, you know, a bit more than me, but so I'm going to do my best to kind of regale the story as I have heard it. And then with a few more flourishes for spooky effect. 
Um, but it's a story of Little Salt Spring. It's in Southwest Florida in like Sarasota County or something. And for like the history of like the spring itself is for the longest time, it just looked like a lake, like a pretty shallow lake. And then one day, I think in like the fifties or something, they realized that it was actually a very, very, very like impossibly deep sinkhole. And within that sinkhole, like there's like, it creates like this anoxic environment where like things just preserve really well. And there are like, this was like a site of like um, pre-Columbian like native burials. Um, there, let me look at my notes <laughs> to be really bad at telling this story. And by notes, I mean the Wikipedia page because um, I think it has some stuff on the archeology. span Yeah, we might have to cut this just for some pacing. Oh, that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Let's just say really old. I, I, I feel like it's an archaeology podcast. I should have been more prepared with the actual archaeology stuff, but I'm more prepared with the stories of the archaeologists who've worked there. Yeah. Which is where it gets, which is where it gets like fucking terrifying. Um, because like the dude who like was in charge, who was the first person in charge of Little Salt Spring, um, had essentially like plundered the whole like remains and was building a, and no one knew about this, was taking bones from this site and built like a fireplace mantle that was just comprised of like human remains inside of it. Oh my God. <laughs> and just all these different artifacts and just fucking insane shit. And I think he like, he probably telling the story wrong, but he like died. And then they like go into his house and everyone's all like, Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> <laughs> this fireplace mantle is full of human remains of like bones from like, fucking some like just early fucking like people in the americas yeah this is like one of the really early like florida has like a few of those sites of just like really early like burials um partly because we have like a lot of stuff that just like anoxic we have like stuff like windover with the bog bodies and then sites like this yeah um so this guy this arc this early archaeologist who was supposed to be, you know, caretaking the site was looting the site and uh, plundering human remains to make this just grotesque shrine of a mantle. Yeah, it's super horror movie. It's insane. It is just like the craziest fucking shit. Um, but that is kind of where like this kind of like legend among some like Florida archaeologists of this site being haunted comes from is you have mm. this, but then the next person in charge of that site has is has an equally insane story where he just kind of like goes crazy. He murders his wife. And just because he knows like Florida swamps so well and just like how to survive it there, they he's on there's like a manhunt for him that lasts like days maybe weeks of him just hiding in the swamp doing like that fucking shit you know like getting like a reed with like a straw and just like hiding underneath the muck dogs can't find him 
and he, he's just like on this hunt and no one really knows why he did it it just like happened <laughs> he's like like just lost it killed his wife and like hid for days in like the swamps of like southwest florida wow so, and then like so, so are they hiring right now or <laughs> no so i think that site is not open to the public it is uh run by i think i think it's owned by the university of miami but the guy who's in charge of it is uh the guy who's in charge of like just like the count like sarasota county archaeology who is the nicest man you'll ever meet just a complete sweetie i've worked with him like in the field, super chill dude, super nice. And like, like me and my coworkers have talked about this. We're like, why hasn't he been affected by this like curse of little salt springs where you either become like some monster, like creating human remain mantelpieces or like some guys killing his, which, you know, I guess killing like your wife is grossly a common occurrence in the history of the world. But um, some like crazy shit like that. And our only assumption is he's just, he's just so pure of heart. He can, he's unaffected by the curse of little salt springs, <laughs> but like, I don't know. It's just like the wildest story. And it has like all those like tropes you see with like horror movies that start talking about like archeology span um, or anything with like the past where it's like, it's about like looting sites. It's about colonial violence. And then like, that often problematic trope of like an Indian burial ground. Yeah. Um, but there's just so many things within like, um, I don't know, you watch enough horror movies and you just start, it just starts popping up everywhere. Yeah. Like, cause there's like all the horror movies that are like classically about archeology. span You'll have like uh, the one that's like in like the catacombs in like uh, Paris, uh, as above, so below, I think is that horror movie. Oh but, like, yeah. You watch like the, oh. yeah yeah but like even just like so many other movies just have like their starting like their opening scene of like oh shit things something evil has now come to earth or like come into this our, mo our modern world um it just happens all the time like the exorcist starts with an archaeological dig when they get the um they you see pazuzu exhumed from like the little pazuzu uh figurine like taken from the ground yeah um this, this movie playing behind us, uh, City of the Dead, is literally about, like, it's about, like, academics, you know, investigating where they probably shouldn't be. That's such, like, a trope in, like, folk horror. And, like, folk horror as, like, a genre is so based in those kinds of things of, like, an academic going somewhere and then, like, you know, like, holy shit. There's, like, the there's this folk horror writer from, like, the early 20th century, um, whose name embarrassingly escapes me. Um, I could probably go grab the book real quick. Quick, cut this out. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I got I to check my position in relationship with the movie. Okay. Yeah, Eleanor Scott <laughs> is the author. And she's like this major like figure of like early folk horror and like very much the creative, like the genre. She has a story called Randall's Round that's all about like a um, an academic of some sort going out to this small little town in England. And they have like stone circles and all that stuff. Um, 
but they have like this little dance that they do. And it's part of this like larger pagan thing. And, you know, they go out to the stone circle at the, like the very climax and whatnot. And it's all like, it's spooky. It's full core. It's putting your, it's getting way too into something. It's the past, like haunting us in like the modern times. Yeah. There's like, I've, I got really into this like folk horror zine uh, last year called Hellbore and it's out of England and it's like every issue is like a different, uh, yeah, it has a different like theme. So there's like one that's the wild gods and it's all about like folk horror and like paganism stuff. One that's the sacrifice issue and it's about how like sacrifice is always in like full core i think like uh both of, both of those themes think like the wicker man yeah yeah I, is um are you familiar with the artist named sin eater oh man am i i don't know if i am i feel like sin eater might have contributed to hellbore um but they make they're based in the UK and they make a lot of that kind of like green man, um, kind of like, uh, like harvest time folksy art, but it's all just like very dark and kind of like yeah. rooted in like monsters and mythology. Uh, they probably would have, but they, their most recent mm -hmm. issue to come out and they have another one coming out soon is the unearthing issue. And that's all about like, I mean, that's so in line with like, just like these ideas of like how archaeology is kind of like, yeah, how it relates to like horror stuff. Um, and just like this idea of like unearthing stuff. If you've ever seen um, the blood of Satan's claw. No, that's an old, that's an old, like, I think that's what it's called. Um, it's an old, like British folk horror movie from the seventies. It's in that same kind of like camp and like, period as the original wicker man and that's a dude working in a farm like field um and he unearths like the skull of the devil this is just, like, like that comic havoc. that you shared with me right i know that comic is exactly that like i'm pretty sure it's the same kind of like weird devil skull yeah um but yeah that com <laughs> that comic is such a good thing <laughs> yeah what did I tell like, you about archaeologists, yeah. son? One day they're tricks and liars, and one day you'll find the devil. Exactly. <laughs> no, I've always made the joke that like um the only reason I got into archaeology is so I could find the Necronomicon ex mortis and unleash darkness onto the earth. <laughs> um, which Evil Dead, another movie in which an archaeologist has released you know, has found something that is now going to change the modern world. Yeah. Um, and, and just like show terrible horrors. Yeah. I recently rewatched that. It had been years since I had seen it. And uh, the first time I had seen it, I don't think it really registered with me that it was an archaeologist um, that had left the recordings. And, um, you know, as, as they're playing the recordings, it like starts to get like more and more terrifying. And it, it you're totally right. It, it hits on this theme, like this common trope where it's like, they've gone too far. You know, they, they've gone mm -hmm. into this like research of this thing that should remain forgotten or this thing that was deliberately, um, it's not lost. It was like deliberately hidden so that it could never be, uh, you know, brought back. 
And then the archaeologist goes and brings it back because they're, you know, so mm-hmm. consumed with their desire to research it that, uh, you know, they don't consider that they should not be researching it. They should not bring it back. Um, I love that kind of story. It's it's like that kind of like heart of darkness story, which ties back into the the little uh, yeah. salt spring thing where it's like, you've gone too far. Shouldn't have gone in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, well, like the past is just like an inherently like, I don't want to say dangerous, but like it, it inherently has the ability to like rupture your ideas of the present. There's, yeah. there's this really good quote from, I think like the first or second issue of Hellbore. Um, I think it's the second one. Where is it the first? I don't remember. Um <clears throat> But it's from like an archaeologist who works in like and it's uh, Katie Soar. Um, she's mostly like a classic antiquity stuff, but she writes a lot about like folklore. Um, but I gotta find this quote <laughs> actually, because it's really good. I used it in a um, a presentation I did for like the SHAs uh-huh. on um, on the work I did at the Estuary Cemetery in Tampa, Florida. I did like the photogrammetry work on that. And this big goal of like the photogrammetry that we had was how do we maintain like the urban context within like for, of like this site, like how do we show like this sites, this historic sites relationship with urban, the urban like landscape, because it's a cemetery site that was completely lost within like Tampa's urban landscape. It lost sometime in like the early 20th century. It's from like the, Fort Brook period. It's the second Seminole Wars, the 1850s. Mm. And it's like, you know, it's a, a large number of, it's, it's a full cemetery um, that was like completely erased within the Tampa landscape. And if you follow Tampa news at all in the past like two years, Tampa is full of cemeteries. Um, when we were working on that project, a, uh, a backhoe like operator was taking away like the all like the soil surfaces, like the road structure, all the stuff we didn't need to like research and getting to like the historic layer to where the grave shafts start to form. And we stop him once the grave shaft gets there and he looks at it, looks at like the archeologist and says, that's a grave shaft. I've seen that all over Ybor. And Ybor is like, Ybor city is like this historic neighborhood and like part of Tampa this dude has seen like this soil pattern all over the city. Oh my God. And cemeteries just keep popping up. Yeah. Um, but like this quote from Hellbore talks about like the, it's talking about stone circles and why we're so like fascinated, like why everyone throughout like history is kind of like fascinated with them, like people, just people inherently, especially people um, existing in, kind of industrial and post-industrial like life. Yeah. Um, And because it's, it's this temporal and like anomaly, it's the past like leaching into the present. And it kind of has this like shattering, like way that we're, where it makes you have to really question, you know, both the linearness of time and kind of like, you know, and both the present's relationship with the past and I use that quote because like when you're dealing with like sites of like colonial violence, 
you have like you got to like you you recognize like when you work on like a, a site like that it's impossible to not like see the ways that like the colonial past like these this period of American expansionism in the 1850s is connected to like the periods of like urban construction, which you're having to like excavate because you're having to go through like construction uh, from like the 1930s and the 1970s to get to this area of like the 18th, this part you're trying to see, this, these periods that construction has covered over this like site of like colonial violence and then you're this and this was like a thing that happened to me when i was at like that excavation i start seeing how i'm connected to that in like crm and this thing that's like my the only reason i'm there the only reason i'm like excavating that site is so like a high-rise building can get built in and then like in that exact moment you're like kind of like weirdly unmarred or like i was from like the present and had like my feet in the present in like numerous pasts and then like this future where I knew that within a year this is just going to be a, a skyscraper which it is now that's like, really how do you powerful. Kind of like recognize that yeah there's so much of that like <laughs> that's really really well said and that's the kind of um like it's just so sticky in CRM you know like you're you're a, a person with connections to the past and the present, and you have this knowledge of the past, but you know that this development is continuing and perpetuating. And it's kind of like, when, when do we ever like stop and really reconcile the like original sin? If, if that's kind of like what we're calling, like the kind of like the, the period of trauma, the, the period of colonial violence yeah. that's been buried well, over and then reburied over and then reburied over and continues to get disturbed. Like that's one of those really sticky things in CRM that just kind of like, it's really hard to, to kind of carry that with us when we're working on that. Yeah. And like, I mean, like the original sin, like what we're really kind of talking about is settler colonialism. And that's like very much like, and that's what I kind of realized in that moment in like, a, in the very much like a horror movie moment where it's like, I've unearthed this thing from the past and it has now had like great implications on like my life in the present. And it's, it is, un, it is unleashed a horror of the past now yeah. onto like the monitor. And like, I don't, and like, yeah, I don't like making like, cemeteries and like human remains into ghosts um if you've read like um uh sarah surface sarah surface evans and oh god who else was the editors on that volume it's um hmm. it's like altered timescapes and hold on i have to look up the title for this like uh edited volume that's all about uh like ghosts and haunting experiences and mm. as like a theoretical framework in archaeology it's blurring timescapes um subverting erasure and i think that and then there's like a subtitle as well but it's edited by sarah surface evans um i think april b saw i think was involved in it 
Keisha Supernaut in Canada. Mm. Um, I think a number of them also did like a edited volume for the SAA on like feminist archaeology in 2020 as well. Um, but that was like published in 2020, this uh, Blurring Timescapes. And it's just articles all about like those kind of ideas about like, like archaeology and haunting and like because like um Kisa Supernaut has this experience where she was working on a site and she was like she felt she had been like legitimately haunted during it and it like changed her like way of understanding how she should approach archaeology wow um and I know in their article they did on haunting for that special edition of the SAA's Journal for Feminist Archaeology, also in 2020, they talk about using haunting as a way for, like, I guess, like, Western audience or pe- people who have, like, a very, like, Western and capitalist-informed view of time and, like, linear time and, like, progressive time and not really that more, like, nebulous, like, time circle kind of stuff. Yeah. And, like, Yeah. Um, they talk a lot about like using haunting as a way of understanding those non-Western, non-capitalist ways of understanding time, because it's very much the capitalist. Like, um, sorry, I just got very distracted by the movie for a second. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's really clever, and I had never considered haunting in that way. And Keisha Supernan is such like just a, a brilliant archaeologist and, and such like a, a powerful force in the discipline uh I, mm-hmm. i'm really excited to read that but um yeah just the idea that there's you know these these events or chains of events that were in the past and using haunting as like you know that that collapses the time in between the past and the present so that you know the effects of these events or chains of events are also still present now using that as like a yeah a way to display you know what we're dealing with in archaeology but also just haunting um that's mm-hmm. that's a really cool idea yeah i know and in that article um that they wrote for the uh saa like volume it's about the um boarding the native boarding schools in like uh i want to say michigan Somewhere, I think it, I think it was in like the Upper Peninsula. Yeah, I can't remember. It's wherever um, Sarah Surfer Evans does like a lot of her work. Um, but they're kind of like exploring stuff because like you have those feelings and like they're looking at like they're showing people like the bricks from like these like archaeological digs there, and like talking to like the stakeholders, like the descendant communities of the people who were sent to these boarding schools, and like having them involved in like kind of talking about like their feelings when they are interacting with these artifacts. Um, and so much of that article is just about like those continued legacies of like settler colonialism and how it's still felt in today's world, not just in like this sense of haunting, but also like we feel settler colonialism through just the very structures of America yeah and how you know with with the example of boarding schools 
it's such a recent trauma too, you know, like it's, yeah, it's only a couple generations removed. And, and if even that, um, you know, for a lot yeah. of people, you know, I, I've met people who went to boarding schools, uh, you know, out here in the West. And, uh, it's just like that, that's one of those things where it's like, it's both archeological, but, um, present at the same time, you know, it's, it's this persisting trauma, this persisting chain of events that, um, you know, has repeated itself over and over and over again. Um, but it's interesting to consider that, like, uh, you know, to, to relate uh, the importance of these sites and, and the importance to the, to the descendant communities to archaeologists. I, I think that's an important piece, too, to really drive home that, um, you know, like, to use me as an example, like, I, I've worked on um, like native Hawaiian sites and on a lot of, um, indigenous sites that were, um, active around the time of, of contact here in the Pacific Northwest where, you know, there were documented, mm -hmm. um, massacres. And so, uh, you know, this is, this is, you know, not really in the deep time. And so to be present as a white settler archeologist on these sites doing, you know, archaeology for some kind of development. Um, you know, it it really it drives home the importance that like I have to approach it with just the utmost respect and, and like delicateness to, you know, make sure that I'm like not doing more damage than archaeology is already doing, you know, and to kind mm -hmm. of acknowledge that. Yeah. And that's such like a dilemma when you're working in like CRM, especially when you're like a field tech and it's like, you have so little power in how like a project goes. Yeah. Um, and like, that's something I always like struggled with is that like that connection I see to like settler colonialism and archeology. span I mean, that's like the history of archeology span in America it's it's salvage archaeology it's the anthropology and the history of anthropology at large in america it's all about you know Na native americans were being erased by like the united states government and there was like this you know fake like race against the clock of like you know preserving those like those cultures um but also like bringing those cultures into the power of like the state and the academy and like through like universities which are all you know the state and the university are like connected forms of power and so it's like that weird kind of way of like trying to protect like native american history um and culture but really just kind of like putting it into like the hands and like the power structures of like the state and CRM is so much a part of that. Yeah. Uh, just cause it has to follow, um, you know, the compliance obligations that are set forth by the yeah. state. Um, and I can't remember where I read it, but it, it there was an indigenous activist that said, um, that, compliance is not consultation and that's been mm. something that has stuck with me is like yeah we can follow the letter of the law for like section 106 for example and 
we can, we can check all the boxes and we can do it perfectly legal, perfectly, you know, to the letter of the law for section 106, but we can still do wrong by indigenous communities, even when we're doing everything, you know, above board to the regulatory framework, just because it doesn't, it doesn't invite indigenous communities in to, you know, have their, their voices heard and their priorities uh, you know, their concerns prioritized in various projects, you know, it gives a window for comments and review, but, uh, you know, that window is so narrow that that window comes through, you know, where, where TIPOs get to, to weigh in. And it's, it's not like the rest of tribal council or the rest of the um, indigenous community. Um, and so, you know, it's like, it, it's just such a narrow uh, you know, space to, to have indigenous voices heard, um, in the whole regulatory framework. Yeah. Like, I mean, I work in like the Southeast and like, but I have worked like briefly in California where like Mm. you work so much closer with like the tribes, but in the Southeast, you know, you only ever work with you only ever have like the TIPO, the Tribal Historic Preservation Office, on site if there's human remains that are pos- that are like possibly uh, Native American. Right. That's the only time you don't like. But I've been on like when I went out to California for work, it's just anything. They're just and it's yeah. The tip the tribes are constantly involved. Um, but I've also from my experience in California. Um, it seems like there's still a lot of tenseness with like, it's a, there's a tense relationship with archeologists and the tribes. Um, but that's, it's a great point that like compliance is not consultation. Yeah. And beyond just like tribal stuff, um, community archeology span does not exist within like the framework uh, for the most part. I think in some cases and with some like, in some very specific cases on projects, you'll have like community involvement um, but for the most part, you don't, you just don't have that, you know, in the Southeast, I work so often on like farmland and every farm in the Southeast has been thoroughly looted of all of its artifacts, but there's such, you know, you, you can tell there's such major sites because there's still so much turning up in them when you go there, but I've worked on like, uh, civil war camps related to like the battle of Manassas and, you know the dude who owns that property will tell you that like, oh yeah, people, I'll have people come over. They'll like metal detect and whatnot, looking for stuff. I've in tobacco fields in Tennessee. I've talked to the people who like, because they saw us working out there and they wanted to talk to us. So I was like, oh, an opportunity to talk to someone who actually like is constantly in relationship with the land here. Yeah. Um, and like, I asked like, you know, we're, you know, we're doing an archeological dig and like, do you guys have like, you pull up like a lot of like archeological stuff, like points and whatnot. And he's all like, oh yeah, yeah. And I was like, God, I wish I could see this collection, but that's not part of like CRM. Right. Yeah. See, Cause like, that's no, it's no good to CRM for the most part. There's no site still there. That's like needs to be like protected. I think what they, I think what we really need in like the Southeast is just like a, like a 
southern farmlands like archaeological survey where we just like a com- like a community archaeology kind of like initiative where it just like work like just like uh empowering the people who are constantly like working in these farm fields um both the farm the farmers like the farm like the landowners but also like maybe even farm workers um yeah and be like hey like here's how we can like here's how archaeology is done here's like what archaeologists need of this data and there's like a bunch of ways you could probably do that like through like just like having like a arc map or like a a survey kind of like just having like people like be able to point like i found this point here um you could probably start like trying to like mitigate the damage to those sites but i just don't see it in a lot of parts of the south i don't see like a lot of like community archaeology florida's pretty good about not necessarily farmland stuff, but they have like the Florida public archaeology network. Yeah. It's a pretty, it's pretty robust. Um, but now I'm in like North Carolina and they don't really have any public archaeology. My, like, uh, one of my coworkers, her neighbor found like a, like had a bunch of artifacts, like pulling up in like her like yard. And she like post on like their, like their neighbor's app or whatever, like their, like and it was all like what's all this look at all the stuff i'm finding and like my coworker was all like um uh, can we talk <laughs> can i come look at that please so like so like in like a real like low like a lull of work where we had nothing going on like summer 2020 me and my coworkers, we all dug like a couple like test units um but we showed him like how to get set up with like registering that site with the state and just like saying here's the stuff we found they there's there's two people that live there or they're i think they're both former like maybe maybe not teacher i mean one's a teacher but i think they both have worked in like the education system so they were talking about like oh using these as like educational resources people can like go into like have these artifacts we found go into the classroom the work we did there which admittedly sadly wasn't enough i mean can't do so much archaeology in your free time as much as like you know (laughs) you don't want to do too much unpaid archaeology yeah um but it seemed like for the most part what probably happened is it was a subdivision um there was probably a larger site that did have a larger context but it all just kind of washed down to that part of the property because that's like the lowest point of this subdivision because we couldn't find any um any really like intact uh strats for yeah for the artifacts like you'd only get like a couple like the most of them were in like just this topsoil kind of like unintact stuff but but there's just like stuff like that it's like what is like you know but i feel like we've digressed (laughs) (laughs) we've we've gone on a journey yeah i feel like a which is often a conversation with me it is a journey and then 30 minutes later i'm like yeah so the reason i brought up the one thing with like the one uh, the blurring timescapes is april bisa's brought up like a good point of like you shouldn't make ghosts out of people you shouldn't like yeah like you can understand like haunting and archaeology through like artifacts and such but like you get into like an ethical muddy ground with like when you start like thinking about haunting within like cemetery concepts or yeah. c- cemetery contexts um which I agree with. Um, so like, I don't really like talking about the cemetery, like the work I've done in that way. 
but there is like but also it's like it's crazy like tampa and like a lot a, a lot of cities in the south there's a lot of historic cemeteries a lot of african cemeteries that are just completely lost within like the landscape of like southern towns and cities um another like cemetery that popped up in tampa was uh it was a black it was like a it was a black a historically black cemetery and it was built over by uh like project housing in the 70s mm. so like and the majority of people living there were african-american and possibly like actual descendants of the people who were buried there and you know talking to people there like there's haunting stuff like people feel haunted by it and it's like a, it's a crazy experience yeah um that's also just heartbreaking to have it is it's fucking terrifying and it's yeah. awful it's just such a heartbreaking thing to know that you've lived over like human remains i mean like i'm, I'm pretty sure at one point before like that one cemetery project happened that i worked on i'm pretty sure i drove over human remains yeah because there was like a road going through it um and it's 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 crazy but it's in, in like within like America at large, like a lot of like like native burial stuff, like it's getting erased, it's getting stolen. Um, and then like within the South, you have a lot of like historically like black cemeteries um, that are constantly being erased. Um, and like it's crazy. Yeah, especially with such lax in Oregon, in Oregon on private land, if there's a previously recorded site, um, it is the state law that you have to conduct archaeological testing or a data recovery on yeah. a previously recorded site, even if it's private land. So uh, the the trick, though, is like it has to have been previously recorded. So you end up mm -hmm. with areas like massive private subdivisions that don't have anything previously recorded because there hasn't been a reason to do archaeology out there, you know, the, and so like, you know, subdivisions are just blasting through sites more than likely because there's no regulatory protection and, you know, like Oregon's fairly strict. I know that it's less strict in other states. So just like thinking of, how many sites, how many human remains, how many just like sacred places just get blasted through for development is that's just heartbreaking. And so it's like to think of haunting as, um, you know, less of like a, a supernatural or like spectral horror and more of just like the psychic damage of doing trauma. Yeah. And settler violence and stuff like that. And that, and that's, and that's very much what, the blurring timescapes is about, mm. um, which is, you know, my, my Halloween archaeology reading recommendation is it's, it's, it's blurring timescapes. Um, but yeah, it's very much about like haunting as like psychic damage and then yeah. like legacies among communities because like, you know, his like the past is like, like the past is always there um its legacies exist it's like what happened the past like it helped build like what happened you know that's 
that's just how like you know that's how history works <laughs> yeah uh, um especially in my very like dialectical like marxist kind of mind um like that's just you know it's there it's it's sort of constantly haunted by it and like and i think that's why in so many horror movies and like horror books and just like the genre um why archaeologists often play a role, even just like that mild, like inciting incident thing. Yeah. It's because you, you, we expose those, those truths, those contradictions. Um, so that, so like, you know, um, which is why I mean, I've made, like, I think it might still be my like pinned Twitter thing. Although I'm not really on Twitter much anymore, but it's, yeah, it's the, I became an archaeologist to unleash darkness and find the Necronomicon and unleash darkness into the world. Um, because that is to some degree, like, even if you're not trying, that's what archaeology is going to do. Yeah. You either need to like, or it, to some degree what archaeology should do. If you, if we understand like the horrors of the past, they're just like the horrors of the past being like settler colonialism, especially within America, but also with large and like archaeology we see the ways that like it's so often co-opted and like used historically as well by like white supremacy oh you know? yeah man that's that's a whole episode in and among itself that is oh, for sure that's a huge can of worms with the way that uh white supremacy co-ops anthropology and and archaeology and and you know physical anthropology too it's still happening it's it's like yeah if oh, anything there's constant. been a resurgence of mm -hmm. you know phrenology and and race science and that's you know that's that's the origins of archaeology right there is it, 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 no, basically thing, race is that, science that is the origins of archaeology and like i was saying with like the origins of like anthropology and archaeology in America being like so stuff like archaeology at large was so much about the construction of like the European like nation states in like that post like feudal period. Um, that's like you know that's when like antiquarianism starts to really become a thing, and you have people like Napoleon getting into this, um, and you'll only and like in the history of like archaeological thought and like the history of archaeology, you'll have like the occasional archaeologists like fighting against that. But like, you know, you have like V Gordon child in like the thirties, like being actively anti-fascist. And that yeah. was like the ideology of like his archaeology. It's all like, there are a bunch of like archaeologists in Germany and other places in Europe who are using this to like promote like, white supremacist and fascist and Nazi ideologies. And that's not what archaeology, like that's not how archaeology should be used because I, at the end of the day, archaeology is a very powerful tool because the past is a powerful like thing that you have to deal with. Yeah. Um, so yeah. It's funny, like unearthing the original sins of anthropology as well, not just original sins of settler colonialism you had said something earlier that um that stuck with me and I, I had to look it up um how you don't like to talk about uh work you've done on cemeteries and, and i feel the exact same way like i've done a lot of work on cemeteries and uh i actively avoid talking about it because um it just it falls into this just 
swamp of bad takes. Um, but uh, Robin Lacey on Twitter, uh, whose graveyard arc um, tweeted something yesterday that that um, what you said reminded me of. She said, thinking about how people always want to talk to me in October because graveyards are spooky, but also knowing that they aren't and should just be talked about all year. Yeah. Yeah, I know, like, that's so true. Um, and I, I mean, I'm even a sucker for, like, going to a graveyard in October because, like, yeah, that you know, there's so much, like, because they're spooky. Like, there's so much, like, so many like images in our culture that just like associate that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, again, it's with that larger thing of just the past being like horrific um, in both like the actual horrors, but also just in that like kind of like abstract way of like seeing something that you just like can't quite comprehend, like it's fuller at, like implications and just that, that horror of that. Um, but like, uh but yeah like just today i was i've been like working with um i've been trying to get like a different job kind of like either better job an archaeology job outside of archaeology so i'm working with like voc rehab which is like uh, a job thing that the government does for people with disabilities which oh, if cool. you're an archaeologist if you're an archaeologist with a disability you're an archaeologist who's become disabled by your work um look into vocational rehabilitation every state in the country has it and they can help you with um job placement in the field that's less like physically demanding um also look into getting in contact with the disabled archaeologist network it's kind of a new uh it's kind of a new organization for disabled archaeologists i'm kind of spearheading a group for like um field techs especially but people working in compliance archaeology who are trying to uh navigate working in it with a disability or get out of it because of their disability yeah that's awesome um, but yeah but i digress uh, but i was just talking to the person today and she was all like oh what's the coolest site you've ever worked on um because that's the question you always get when you're an archaeologist like what are some cool sites and i'm like well they're either incredibly boring and i have to explain to you why they're cool or it's a cemetery and I don't want to talk about it. But I always kind of have that problem where it's like, I do want to talk about the cemetery because I did interesting work on it with like the photogrammetry. So it's like yeah. work I'm proud of, but it's work I have like this weird relationship to. Yeah. Because it's like, because of what we've talked about. Because it's yeah. so like complicated and kind of, a, it's just progressive. I sent like the SHA presentation I did to like my voc rehab person. Cause I was like, oh, I'll send it to you. And she's all like, She's all like, this is, I've not had to think about this before. Like, she's all like, you know, I go to like, I travel a lot. So I'll go to towns and I think about like gentrification and how that affects stuff. But I've never thought about how like just deep in the history it is. Like how much of like these, how much like any kind of history or any kind of peoples that don't really like work in favor of like white supremacist and like colonial like ideologies how long that history has just been like washed over in the urban landscape yeah absolutely yeah i've been taking notes uh during this whole uh podcast so um i'll be tracking down links for all the things you mentioned 
and putting those in the show notes. So anybody listening uh, on whatever app, Spotify, uh, Apple Podcasts, uh, I think it's also on like Stitcher and Google Play. Um, it should be in the notes of wherever people are listening. Um, yeah, I'm really excited to read Blurring Timescapes. I'm really happy that you mentioned that. It's really great. And I did like a reading group with like some friends. It was a really fun, like mixed group of people. It was like some archaeologists working CRM, uh, an archaeologist who was doing kind of more of the academic route, though kind of like fell off of it because academia is terrible. Um, but so is everything in archaeology. And then yeah. like, you know, and then just people that are just like not at all interested in archaeology. Some friends that I just know who are into spooky things. A friend who works in like the agricultural like industry as like an engineer. And then like my wife, who's like an HVAC engineer. Like I had all of these people in it and like, it's a pretty good like paper just for like archaeology and interacting like archaeology for like people who not aren't necessarily like professional archaeologists. I mean, there's still like a lot of like dense like archaeology reading. So definitely read it with an archaeologist. But I thought it was a pretty fun like reading group to have because it was like this very diverse group of people. And it's kind of something a lot of people are interested in. I think a lot of I think people in general are interested in haunting as an idea because yeah. it's part of the culture. It's something a lot of us experience. Um, it's what we're all interested in. Absolutely. Well, uh, I think that's probably a good place to cut the episode. Uh, Travis, where can people find you online? Um, you can, I think I'm going to start going back onto Twitter. Um, so you can find me on Twitter at leftist dad jokes. <laughs> I love your handle. <laughs> um, and yeah, that's probably the best place. I guess if you want to have a pro professional connect connection with me, find me on LinkedIn or something. <laughs> I think it was on my friend's like music podcast. So I was like, find me on LinkedIn, I guess. <laughs> um, nice. And then well, I think, yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining the podcast and sharing these, uh, you know, spooky stories, but also like great insights into, um, you know, like folk horror and how all of this ties back into archaeology. I feel like that for me, there are so many things that I'm interested in, but I have such a hard time tying it back into archaeology. So it was, it was really fun, uh, chatting and, and, uh, kind of going all over the place, but tying it all back into archaeology. So I, I really that's, appreciate it. That's that's my special gift is my brain goes all over the place, but I somehow always tie it back to archaeology. Um, <laughs> I lack that talk, gift. Yeah, talk to me enough and I, I can do it for pretty much anything. <laughs> nice. Um, nice. So yeah, um, but other than like finding me on like Twitter, I'll do some plugs. I'll plug the Disabled Archaeologist Network um again it's like i said it's new um but there is like a crm group that uh we're starting and um yeah and then if if you really need to get in contact with me uh wait for a full moon set up a few candles in a pentagonal um 
just say some random Latin, um, quote some either 90s cartoons or Karl Marx, and I'll probably show up. <laughs> look, look in the mirror and say Travis Corwin five times. <laughs> He'll turn up. Yeah, I'll turn up. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, we also have a Go Dig a Hole Discord. Um, anybody can anybody who listens to the podcast can join. Um, yeah, just like hit me up on Twitter at go dig a hole. I'll send you an invite. Um, but yeah, Travis is also on the discord. So, uh, you know, it's, it's not a super active discord, which is actually great because, uh, I've have too many notifications and stuff to keep up with in my life as it is, but, uh, it's, it's fun whenever we're on there. Yeah. Um, well, I hope you enjoyed the horror movie that's been playing behind me this entire time. I have, yes. So City of the Dead, uh, is that on, where is that? It's Netflix? on Shudder. No, Shutter. it's on Shudder. Okay. I'm a, I'm a Shudder purist. Um, <laughs> yeah. Awesome. I feel, like we, yeah, I feel like we did a good job on like closing up the podcast, but I'm also like, oh, for some levity, do you have any like horror movies that you have to watch during like, October are you that kind of person oh yeah I I watch um like seasonally I'll get into like Halloween kind of movies um and I'll get into like Christmassy kind of movies around Christmas um yeah my Halloween movies uh trying to think like um Edward Scissorhands Evil Dead like Evil Dead 2 and Army of Darkness. Um, mm-hmm. Love those. Um, my wife, lo- like her all-time favorite movie is Practical Magic. Um, loves that movie. Uh, so, of course, like we always make the jump from that to Hocus Pocus, which is just nice. like really campy, cheesy Disney witch stuff. Um, what else? I don't know. I'm kind of like all, all over the map. I had, so I had never seen Halloween town before so like when, I, when I was a kid and I moved to Portland, like a uh, little over five years ago. They have and, the Halloween town there in Oregon. Yeah. So it's in the, the town of St. Helens, Oregon, which is, you know, like a 40 minute drive outside of uh, Portland. Oh, nice. uh, up the Columbia river. And so they do like a big Halloween town thing every year. And so I had, I had been to that without ever seeing the movie. And so I was just like the other day I turned it on and I think I made it like 15 minutes into it. I was just like, you know what? I'm sure this was great to watch when you were like six years old, but um, as like a 37 year old, it just doesn't really have that same kind of uh, punch. Yeah. Well, but, uh, as as someone who is very much the Disney Channel original movie generation, um, I do, me and my wife do watch Halloween Town every year. Um, <laughs> I think, and then we'll watch like a couple of, we'll watch Halloween Town 2, we'll watch Halloween Town High. Um, I think even last year, we, I think last year we watched every single one. Um, I'm a sucker for Phantom of the Megaplex, which was a really lame one <laughs> they did. Um, yeah, I, I <laughs> yeah, I'll watch all that stuff. I'll I'll binge watch a bunch of like Goosebumps episodes. Oh yeah. Um, of course, you got to watch the Haunted Mask. 
Yes. And then, and then after that, I'll just, you know, I'll also just watch like a bunch of crazy, like random, like horror B movies from like the sixties and seventies and whatnot, or just the classic shit. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm a, I'm so for my, my family ha- did a haunted house like every year for Halloween. And then when we, and I was never into horror movies growing up. So when we stopped doing that, I was like, what am I supposed to do for Halloween? And then I got very into horror movies. <laughs> you got to have fix. It, my mom thinks it's the funniest thing because I just never liked them like growing up. And then like freshman year of college, I was all like, I have nothing to watch. So I just got into all like the classic, like things you watch for Halloween. I think it was like, you know, um, and now I'm just like a fucking like addict for like, all of that like schlocky grindhouse and like whatnot stuff. Yeah. I get so into it. Like in October, I just like, I can't get enough of the like B horror movies. I used, I used to love those when I was a kid though. Like I would watch, you know, like creature from the black lagoon and like the blob and stuff like that. Just like really bad horror movies that were, uh, you know, like they belong in Mystery Science Theater 3000, but yeah, um, I loved it when I was a kid. So I still watch it every now and then. It, it has a special place in my heart. Oh, yeah. No, that and that's like me with all those like Disney Channel stuff. Now, now we're getting to that point where we're probably just going to cut out most of this, I imagine, because it's kind of <laughs> rambling. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a creature locked inside of a house for the most part who never talks to any human souls except for on like a full moon when I'm summoned. Um, so when I start talking to people, I'm just like, I'm at this point in um, that post uh, the beginning of 2020, that 2020 period yes. where if I, if I run into person, I'm like, let me tell you everything. <laughs> Well, listener, if you're still with us, your next scary story is starting right now. Oh, you like literally, literally just came back from bike ride. Yeah. Yeah. I'm still wearing like my, my bibs and everything. Yeah, it was like such a beautiful day. And I have um, some friends visiting from Seattle. Um, and uh, my friend Leslie just got a, his first gravel bike. So we went out for oh, cool. his first gravel ride. Uh, and yeah, it was there's sun. perfect there timing. There is sun today. Yeah. Oh, it's <laughs> so is, nice. There is not a cloud in the sky in Vancouver right now. And like this, this is unprecedented. Yeah, same in Portland. It's been so soggy the past couple of weeks. Um, yeah. All the leaves are changing. It's nice and sunny. Uh, perfect day. I know it's it's great. I'm I'm having my indoor time now because uh, this evening we will likely be going outside to go do a little aurora hunting, and I'm oh, very excited about that. It's happening. Nice. It's happening. I'm trying not to get you excited excited because I have been let down by space wind many times in the past. So it's like. <laughs> that damn space wind space wind but this time (laughs) this time it might work maybe hopefully i've never seen the aurora borealis but it's one of those like lifetime goals like i I want to see it that's a bucket list item for sure and i mean i know it's not going to be the full like swirly dancey 
situation like it would be if we were further, like much further north. But at this point, I will take what I can get because all of those teeny tiny towns that normally have Aurora tourism are wisely not doing that yeah. this year. What with uh, the Rona and all the Ronies. Yep, in the in this panorama. <clears throat> yeah. So the the border just opened up recently for what was it for for Canadians? Sort of. So it's officially officially opening for Canadians for non-essential travel. Um, not this week, this upcoming week, but next week. Okay. Um, so my birthday gift, apparently from Canada, is an open border. Hooray! Thanks, Canada. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> since we are multiple document holders. Um, we we kind of did our little test run by taking a, a little sneaky sneak down to Seattle and it was totally fine. It cool. was totally fine. Nobody cared <laughs> either way. Um, <laughs> you know, we just jumped through the little hoops that we needed to jump through, still need to get PCR tests. But, you know, with a little bit of advanced planning, everything was completely painless, totally free yeah. and everybody was happy. That's awesome. Yay. Yay. Oh, also I got, hold on, I got my Velvetaeist archaeologist. <laughs> World's okayest archaeologist. Yep. <laughs> oh my God. That's awesome. I thought I saw, was it John Lowe had one? Yeah. He has the t-shirt and I was like, okay, that's great. What's the deal? And I saw that they made a sweatshirt and I was like, well, this is, I, I'm living in a sweatshirt land, not yes. a t-shirt land up here. So I was like, I'm gonna get me a sweatshirt and I'm gonna wear it for the next like six months. And it's yeah. gonna be great. T-shirt time is a narrow window in this part of the world. Yeah, no. And since uh, apparently my my delicate Southern California <laughs> constitution uh, gets very cold very easily. I'm like, I've been in sweatshirts and sweatpants since like September. Yeah. So has it been a hard adjustment for you to move from Southern California to the Pacific Northwest? Sort of. Um, the biggest, the biggest, like, I guess, shock for me has just been the weather, the weather and the mm. temperature. I have never in my life experienced this crazy thing called seasons um, until we moved up to Vancouver in 2019. And I have to say, aside from the being cold aspect of it, um, I'm a fan. I'm into it. I, I like actually having uh, a, a visible and tangible sense that like, oh, time is passing the 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 calendar the seasons are progressing and it's it's a very clear distinction between the seasons which is super cool and i mean i you know just plants are cool when the the trees are doing the thing right now with leaves and it's very scenic i mean seattle is just stupidly pretty it's stupidly <laughs> pretty up here um honestly my only complaint is that i get cold and yeah. you know my toes get cold and that, and that sucks yeah uh, my wife has uh, Raynaud's syndrome, mm, uh -huh. and uh, so her fingers and toes get cold all the time. Yeah, yeah, I've got a bunch of friends with that, and I think, I don't think I have that. I think I might have, like, something very similar <clears throat> to that. It's like a circulation thing related to, like, my histamine issues and all that nonsense. Um, but yeah, so I... Um, I basically spend all day in socks. I, like, I do not take socks off ever. And then I had to invest in these bad boys, the like sleeping oh, bags yeah. for your feet, slippers. Oh my God. These are incredible. These are the only thing that actually keep my feet warm. Yeah. And I, love them. I have the low top version of those. 
I love them. Oh, nice. They're, I mean, not only are they just like soft and squishy and everything, but they are the perfect temperature of warmth. Yeah. So that's all I need. That's all I need for fall and winter up here. Totally. Um, so I'm trying to think you, have you been on the podcast before? No, I think this is actually the first time yeah. the stars and the schedules have aligned yeah. for, for the podcast, which is kind of exciting. Nice. Yay. Yeah. Cause I know that you joined on in the beginning of the pandemic, we were doing those happy hours for, yeah. you know, whoever on archeology span Twitter happened to hop on and then we kept getting zoom bombed. So we just kind of mm-hmm. quit doing that. It just got too annoying. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, so when I was talking to the other hosts, uh, they couldn't make it today just because everybody's schedules are in chaos right now. But um, yeah, totally. Uh, they all said hi, and uh, they, you know, they were talking about how fun it was to hang out on the the Zoom happy hours. But yeah, so I guess like um, maybe a, a good starting point is like, could you introduce yourself to our listeners, kind of like where are you in the world? What are you, what are you doing? Um, kind of like a brief background on, you know, what, what brought you to archeology span and, and where you are now. Okay. Um, sure. Yeah, I guess where to start. Um, my name is Annalise. I am an archeologist slash producer. Um, because the thing that I have all of my degrees and training and interest in is archeology, span but the thing that I do for work that actually pays the bills is TV production. And what I have sort of found myself in is a weird liminal space between both worlds. And the sweet spot is when I get to work on history slash archaeology themed TV shows. And then everything kind of comes together and it's really cool. Um, I'm originally from Los Angeles and I am currently uh, sitting in a chair in Vancouver, British Columbia. So that is a very (laughs) different place, very different climate. And perhaps in the future when things are a little bit less germ filled and travel is back to a, or in in the new normal state, whatever that ends up being, I will be able to sort of split my time a little bit better between beautiful British Columbia, you know, registered says the uh, tourism board and uh, my other, my actual home in Los Angeles. Nice. Nice. And uh, Oh, and of course, the obligatory plug, uh, when I'm not doing, or when I'm not doing TV stuff, I use my, my, uh, my paychecks to buy myself a plane ticket to go to Albania once a year to go hang out with my friends. And, uh, I am the media manager for project Navitsa archeology, span uh, which is an awesome early stages, early days project in, uh, Navitsa, Albania of all places. And it's, uh, me and a bunch of my friends from the UK, and we have a good time up there, and we eat a lot of cheese. <laughs> cheese and, and wine, right? Don't they have really good wine in that part of the world? They do. They do. Um, usually, we get racky up in the mountains, so uh, it's it's still grapes, but it's a stronger form of grapes. Yeah. <laughs> nice. So you also have a TikTok um, that, yes. uh, we have to plug. I, I can't let oh you get away from this podcast without <laughs> plugging your TikTok. So Annalise Bear, B-A-E-R, um, is that your, your TikTok handle as well? 
That is, so it's a little bit different. That is my Instagram and my Twitter handle, since it's mm -hmm. just my name. Um, and I had to do things a little bit differently on TikTok, I guess, just because it felt weird putting my full name as my handle, but I know some yeah. people have done it. Um, but yeah, so on on the socials, uh, mm -hmm. on Instagram and Twitter, um, it's just my name, Annalise Fair. And on TikTok, <laughs> TikTok um, with the tickety tax, um, I am Annalise the archaeologist. And nice. apparently people like what I do, apparently. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, so we'll be sure to link that in the show notes for anybody listening. We'll have a link down below. Um, but yeah, could you uh, tell the listeners a little bit about like what you've been doing with the TikTok? I think it's really cool because there's so much... <laughs> misinformation or even disinformation of uh archaeology and and um uh just science in general and, and humanities but um you know you've been doing a lot to do like public education and, and kind of public outreach and and uh, advocacy through that how's what's your experience been like there um the whole thing is super weird i am not gonna lie it is super weird i I'm pretty much the last person who wanted to join TikTok. I enjoyed seeing a lot of the things that other people were doing, other, you know, funny, creative people, the the type of people who were also making quality vines back in the day. Um, you know, I, I loved seeing a lot of the content that was coming out of there, but I was also very aware that it was an app for children to do weird dances on for a while. And so that... It, you know, it just seemed like something that was absolutely yeah. not for me. It's like, I'm out here trying to survive as a millennial on the internet. So it's like, I'm, I'm used to a certain level of internet and weirdness and TikTok seemed to be a whole, a whole different ball game for the children. And that was fine. That was totally okay. But as basically last, starting last year, I think because everybody was inside and you know, the, the internet was the only way we had to keep in touch and interact with life during the, the main lockdown of everything. Um, it became apparent that TikTok is where people are getting their information these days. Like it spreads so fast via this one weird <laughs> platform. And specifically, uh, it spreads amongst kids. Um, I feel like I can say that because I'm in my mid to late thirties. Um, so the kids, um, <laughs> are getting their information from TikTok because as we all know, the U S education system is garbage, especially yeah. when it comes to teaching history, it's flaming garbage. So I, you know, just from my own experience of being in a, a public high school, which, you know, was apparently a very good public high school, all the whatever. Um, my history classes were garbage, absolute garbage. Um, and it was only because I had an interest in history on my own that I was the kid who was super into like ancient Egypt and stuff like that. So I was doing all this reading on my own, finding all the stuff out on my own. If you're not a, that type of kid, you're just going to be getting whatever information is given to you. And on TikTok, because it is essentially a lot of young people talking to each other, there's a ton of misinformation going around. Just, it's outrageous the type of things that are being shared on the internet at large, but then also on TikTok. And it's all very, it's very simply and cheaply made content that's very sensationalized. And so people see this and because they don't know any better, they're like, oh my God, that's crazy. I didn't know that. And then, the, you know, these things get almost a million views and you know it's stuff about 
it, it's always stuff about, you know, Atlantis, lost cities, you know, did you know type things. And yeah. not only are they wrong, they're garbage. <laughs> and, but, <laughs> but people share them. I mean, the, like I said, these things get almost a million views. It's bonkers. Yeah. Um, and this, I don't know, it's weird. I, I realized that TikTok, <laughs> of all things, um, you know, not Twitter, not Instagram, whatever, TikTok is kind of the the current frontier of public engagement for, um, you know, anything educational, you know, especially with science content and history content. This is the frontier. This is, this is where it's happening. And so I kind of gathered myself uh, and summoned all of the emotional and physical energy I could do. <laughs> and I joined TikTok and I started posting some little videos. I just posted two that I had already made um, for Instagram and it took off. <laughs> and I did not expect um, upwards of like a hundred thousand people to see the stuff that I posted and liked. And it's it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. And, you know, you can see all of the likes and the comments coming in in real time. So it's very overwhelming. And I, I, I have to, I have to limit the whole thing because yeah, it's like, I have a, a very small amount of energy to deal with all of this. And yeah, I'm a very anxious and normally pretty introverted person. So basically just getting a blast of social media yeah. saps all my energy. Um, but so I treat it like work. I, I do do videos and in, engage with people and things during work hours, essentially. And then I set up my phone to actually disable the app um, from about 7 p.m. onwards. So um, I'm not tempted to check it. I'm not tempted, tempted to scroll forever and just kind of get lost in that endless scroll of things. So that helps. Um, but yeah, uh, to date, the most popular thing on my TikTok is my little video about forbidden snacks that I made as a joke one morning, <laughs> and it's still going. It's still getting comments. I don't. I don't know how. I, I don't understand it. But if people like it and it's a fun yes. way for them to learn, then I've done my job. <laughs> the forbidden snacks of archaeology. Yeah, so it, good. <laughs> absolutely mind blowing. And then the best part was that today. It turns out um, you can actually eat forbidden gummy bears because uh, somebody made a, uh, a 3D model based on the photo of that little amber bear, the forbidden yeah. gummy bear, and 3D printed it because he got a 3D printer, that kind of person, and made his own gummy bears. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so I got to find eat, these. <laughs> you can eat the forbidden gummy bear, so... Yay. <laughs> we can check at least one of them off the list now. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. People had a lot of questions about the, the volcano bread and the tomb cheese. And it's like, let's, let's, you know, put a pin in those, just come back to that. But for now we can focus on the gummy bear. And I think that yeah. works. That's really cool. So we were chatting on Twitter the other day. Um, have you had many trolls on, on TikTok? Um, not many. I've had, um, some, probably no more than the usual amount of trolls that come out, especially when you're talking about anything related to ancient Egypt. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's the sort of thing that is easily noticeable. I mean, it stands out immediately as someone who is trolling. Um, 
and it's something that you can easily either delete or block or both. Okay. Nice. Yeah. So I have not gotten onto TikTok. I, I don't have a TikTok account. Um, That's and, okay. Yeah. That's I just okay. don't think I have the the energy or kind of like mental capacity to keep up with that. Um, it's a lot. I, it's a yeah, lot. I enjoy consuming the content, but the way yes. I consume is always like when it's been reposted to Instagram or Twitter mm-hmm. or something like that, um, which Pretty I like much. because I it kind of like- That's the best way. Yeah. And it also kind of curates it, you know, like it's gone through some kind of filter, like a, somebody I already follow has said, Hey, this mm-hmm. is good enough for me to port over to a different platform. Totally. Yeah. That's yeah. Uh, up until I got a TikTok account. That was my preferred way of seeing it too. I would usually see things end up, you know, all the stuff that gets reposted on Instagram <clears throat> and, and that was just fine. That, that was, and actually still is just fine. Um, yeah. It's, like I said, it's such a strange app. I mean, it's, there are so many people using this one app and because it's a, it's a visual medium as opposed to something like Twitter, which obviously has like millions and millions of people using it, but it's for the most part, it's just words. Whereas TikTok is visual and so many people are using this as a way to give everyone else uh, a little window into their lives, wherever they live. I mean, there's, there's so many good things that are happening on this app, but then of course it's equally balanced out by a lot of the bad stuff that is happening on there. So it's, I don't know, it's hit or miss, but Yeah. um, yeah, I've seen some really, really funny and creative people on there, you know, stuff that really does remind me of some of those truly iconic vines, just again, pure unfiltered creativity. Yes. Uh, I hope these people go on to have a wonderful crea- creative crea- career somewhere doing something with this talent. Cause they clearly have whatever it is to make this sort of thing. Um, I mean, you know, there's cooking, there's crafts, uh, there's this one girl that I absolutely love. She's a farmer. She and her family, they're farmers in Cornwall. And her, her entire content is just getting her grandfather to say things because he has the most incredible thick Cornish accent. And it's just, <laughs> it's ear candy. I mean, it's so much fun. And, and he's literally just saying things. And, you know, people will ask him in the comments, like, you know, can you have him say something like, you're a wizard, Harry? it's the dumbest thing ever but it's the greatest thing ever and then yeah there's there's a guy that i follow that does like step-by-step uh cooking for uh you know indian indian cooking which is something that i really want to improve on my own kitchen so i'm like i'm gonna i'm gonna just watch this guy's videos and hopefully i can learn something that's cool that's really cool so it's like everything literally everything good and bad yeah um i'd imagine so you're also kind of caught between two worlds with uh, your archaeology background and your um, TV production background. Um, and I, I know that you're not at liberty to say like what you're working on um, currently. But... Well, I can right now because I am currently not working on anything. I am <laughs> uh, with, with all the air quotes in between projects, gotcha. uh, as is um, uh, the tradition for this time of year, because a lot of uh, a lot of productions will usually start earlier in the year and then finish sometime maybe at the end of the summer or early fall. Um, 
And usually this is kind of a weird, a little weird zone where you might be able to pick up some short-term work before everything really shuts down for the holidays, but maybe not. I don't know. There's, I've got a couple of irons in the fire in the moment. So I'm kind of just waiting to see what ends up actually happening, who gets back to me first, that kind of thing. But uh, yeah, so I am currently unemployed and uh, yeah. I didn't realize that um, TV production was so seasonal. Um, that's it an is. odd similarity with archaeology. Yeah, yeah, it's it is. It's um, yeah, it definitely has its sort of flow for the year. So yeah, usually the TV production year will start sometime in late January, early February, if everyone's really on it, and it's like a you know air quotes good year, and things are things are getting up and running quickly. But yeah. lately, things tend to start February, March. Um, they'll go through the summer into the fall and then everything will wrap up, uh, usually November, December. Most will try to push through Thanksgiving, which is kind of a weird lost week for everybody, but then wrap up and then kind of power down, finish up all their projects before Christmas. And then usually then everyone will sort of be let go and, you know, let loose into the world to go enjoy a holiday um since we're all contract for the most part and then it all starts again the next year and you know january february march april at some point around then depending on what you're doing and then sometimes if you're really lucky you can get a unicorn job that actually goes through the holidays so, so then you have you know a paycheck over the holidays which is always a nice thing to do yeah oh nice but uh yeah it's weird it's um yeah, I mean, that's that's the freelance TV schedule. And yeah, it can, you know, jobs can be as long or as short as you want, depending on what you do, depending on what you like to do. And it's, uh, it's a weird world. It's a weird world, but there are a lot of similarities with like the CRM world, for example. So it's like, yeah, contract, kind of seasonal. Uh, projects can be long or short. <laughs> it's a a lot of chaotic energy on productions and uh, <laughs> sometimes you get to travel to strange places. Huh. Are you, if you're not able to answer this question, that's okay. <laughs> um, are, have you ever been in a situation with TV production and being an archeologist where um, the production team has tried to push you towards the ancient aliens route? Let's see. Um, kind of, uh, kind of, because usually that is, that is the unintentional angle that a lot of people come at topics from mostly just because they don't know, or, you know, that's what they've seen on TV or maybe a casual Google, maybe they're fans of Graham Hancock, whatever. Um, but usually that's the initial angle of trajectory for a story, but then I can usually swoop in and be like, let's bring it back this way. Nice. And I will now show you how to tell this story without mentioning or alluding to any of that nonsense. And I've done that before. That is really cool. That's, that's the dream right there is when you can yep. shape the narrative. Yeah. It, it hasn't happened a ton only because it's only been in recent years where I've kind of, been in a high enough position and I, you know, it's not even high. It's like medium. I'm like right in the middle of the, like the, the ladder of hierarchy and productions. Like I'm in the middle, yeah. um, that I've actually 
been able to do that. Um, because in the past, you know, I was kind of towards the bottom and I could make suggestions, but ultimately it wasn't, uh, my decision to make the decision had to come from someone higher up, but I can make suggestions and present ideas. Um, but yeah, I have actually, actually been able to, uh, fully shape and reshape the narrative. And, uh, I did have a job a couple, how many years ago, three years ago, three years ago, four years ago what is time, um, where I was able to essentially, I was given, I was given a task to create uh, a story, uh, a story outline, that's what we call it, because you are telling a story. <laughs> Every episode of television tells a story. Um, and I was supposed to create two things, two stories, uh, these two specific topics, and it started from a place of Graham Hancock, and by the time I was finished with it, it was a place or place of 100% history and wow. like actual places that really exist, actual things to see for that specific topic. So I felt pretty good about that. That is awesome. Well, uh, speaking of telling stories, <laughs> I hear you have a ghost story. I do. I do. And it that is, is that season. segue. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent segue. <laughs> Sometimes I spot them and I'm like, oh yeah, that's a segue. That's, yeah, that's the a segue. Good one. That was a good one. <laughs> uh yes, I do. I have I have a ghost story. And unlike literally everyone you will see on television doing the paranormal shows these days, because that's the hot trend, uh, yeah. I'm not trying to make a show about it because I don't have to. <laughs> like <laughs> It's as simple as that. And yeah. I, I say this as someone who is a uh, a committed fan and long-term viewer of Ghost Adventures. In fact, we were just watching an episode last night, as is the tradition in spooky season. <laughs> um, and it, I mean, I love that show so much because it's been like 20 plus seasons and the the narration and the opening title sequence has not gotten any better. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know exactly what you're watching every time you put it on. Exactly. And the fact that it's always like, you know, we we saw a ghost once and now we've set out to make an entire show to prove that ghosts are real. And it's like, well, I saw a ghost. I'm not trying to make a show about it. Yeah. I, I don't see what the big deal is. It was a weird thing. And I can tell that story. Should I tell that story now? I probably. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Let's go for it. Okay. Okay. Ghost story. So, um, setting the scene. This this was in <laughs> spring of 2007. I had just gotten accepted to the University of Bristol in beautiful Bristol, England, for a one-year master's degree program. So, um, it being in a totally different country, um, for my spring break that year, since that was my senior year of college, um, my mom and I took a trip to England to not only go see this place that I was going to be going to school and living for a year, um, but also, you know, have a fun little like spring break, go do some England things, the usual. Um, so got on a plane, flew over there. I'm one of those people that cannot, for the life of me, sleep on airplanes. Um, that is kind of the one thing that I just do not like at all about travel. It's like, especially when it's like, all the stuff I want to go to is far away on other continents. So I'm going to have to get on a plane, but it is like 11 hours of torture for me. Yeah. Um, not the same because way. it's like, not because I'm anxious about air travel or whatever. It's like, I can't, I'm not comfortable. I yeah. cannot sleep. 
And so by the end of it, I'm just, just annihilated yeah. from being on an airplane for 10, 11 hours or whatever. So um, it was not a comfortable flight over there, but I guess I watched some movies. I don't even remember. Um, I think <laughs> I tried to take an Ambien or something and just didn't sleep. And I just sort yeah. of like did the thing where like you close your eyes and you just kind of lay there. And then it's like, okay, cool. It's been five minutes. <sighs> All right. <laughs> Here we go. Um, but um, I knew like, I, I knew once we got there, it'd be okay. Cause we were going to be staying at this nice little hotel. So I was like, okay, if I can just get through this, I'll be able to have a good night's sleep at a hotel in a real bed. Everything will be great. Um, and I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure this was the first, the first night there. Um, and since, yeah, it was, it was my mom and I, the hotel room had two beds and we do, we do our arrival stuff. We're both like horribly jet lagged, but it's like, cool. Gonna have a wonderful night's sleep in this comfortable hotel bed. It's gonna be great. Um, and because I was jet lagged, I woke up kind of around 3 a.m. Um, just kind of did that thing where it just sort of like, ding, everything's awake now. Um, and I was like, okay, jet lag, this sucks. And I rolled over to see what time it was. And it was like, eh, 3, 3 a.m.-ish on the clock. And... I was just sort of looking around the room and I noticed that there was um, a thing, <laughs> a shape of a person oh. uh, sitting at the foot of my mom's bed. Oh no. Um, and um, I, I did the thing where I sort of looked for a second. I was like, okay, that's weird, you know, checking. And then I literally did the like the the cartoon thing where you're like rubbing your eyes, <laughs> like rub my eyes to like wake everything up. And I like looked, eyes were fully open. I was awake. I was looking and there was, um, the, the shape of a person, a human, um, sitting on the end of my mom's bed. And Whoa. it was, it was super weird, um, for, you know, a number of reasons. Uh, I mean, one is like, okay, there's a third person in this hotel room. What's going on? It's like, no, doors closed. That's not an actual person because I can kind of see through it, um, the, the texture of this person was like uh, TV snow. So it was like a, a very, a very tight, oh. light uh, TV static um, oh in, in the shape of a person. And the more I looked, I was able to sort of start discerning some details. It was um, like, it was a male, it was a man um, in what looked like a, like a hooded sweatshirt. Um, and was just sort of, you know, sitting there, just kind of sitting there, sitting on the edge of the bed. Like it was, you know, like this person was waiting for something. And then I actually saw like, um, uh, raised its left arm and like, looked down, like it was checking the time, um, and put the arm down and then sort of like looked again. And then it stood up and just dissipated into the room. Like, it was like, oh it's time time to go bye <laughs> wow and that was that that was yeah. that was it and it was um uh it's like you know if any if anybody's seen any of these you know ghost adventure type shows they usually tell or they'll, they'll usually talk about you know while they're scaring themselves in the dark or you know yelling bro did you see that um yeah uh there wasn't any kind of weird energy it wasn't like you know we were in somebody's space or this was like an angry ghost coming to cause problems like it was it was literally as if 
you know, some somebody was just passing through um, on the way to something. Just did did not even register that we were there. It didn't matter. It was like um, the the best way I can describe it is if if you're familiar with Photoshop, um, you know how there's the different layers that you will have in yeah. in your your Photoshop image or you know piece, you know layer one, layer two, layer three, background. It was really as if there were two two layers, layer one and layer two on this Photoshop project. And someone had just scooched the opacity of one layer down so you could see what was happening on the other layer. Whoa. And that was it. That was it. And that was the time I saw a ghost. Wow. Wow. It was pretty cool. I, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I've, I, I've, I've had weirder things happen since then, especially in England, because there's a lot of very old stuff there and a lot of stuff that's had people passing through it for, you know, a while. Um, yeah. But yeah, I guess uh, as far as ghost, ghost sighting goes, that's like one of those ones that people are always trying to see, which is like a full body apparition or whatever. Um, yeah. And it was a guy who just did not care, did not care either <laughs> way. Had somewhere else to be apparently. And that was cool. Yeah. So were you initially just like terrified when you saw this? No, not at all. It was more just like, what? Huh. That's what? really cool. <laughs> Lots of just sort of like sitting there staring, just being like, okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. This is the thing that's happening. I guess that answers that question. Okay. <laughs> that, okay. All right. That, that is, that is a ghost in the hotel room. Okie dokie huh. then. All right. Um, let's see if I can go back to sleep now since we have a big day tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> that was were, it. were you able to go back to sleep? Eventually, yeah. There's, you know, a little uh, because it, of the, the jet lag and the fact that I had like several minutes of being like awake, awake in the middle yeah. of the night. Um, it took a minute for me to go back to sleep, but I did eventually go back to sleep. Um, and then, you know, the next day we went and like walked around the university. <laughs> wow. And no sense of dread. That is, that's really cool. No. Yeah, no, no, no. It's, it's, uh, yeah. No, <laughs> like I said, it was really like, you know, the, the, the Photoshop layers, it was like not, you know, no one was messing with anybody else's space or anything like that. Um, I mean, I, you know, Eng England is one of those places where, you know, if you, if you accidentally bump into something that is like not chill, you will know. You will know pretty much right away. It's like, oh, yeah. The vibes have changed. The air feels weird. I'm gonna go. I'm. I'm just gonna go back out here and let whatever's happening in here do its thing. I'm gonna go be outside. Yeah. But uh, uh, yeah, man. that. And you know, unfortunately, I did not film it. I didn't have you know some weird like beepy machine <laughs> to register the fact. Like I, I know it. <laughs> I yeah, saw it with my just eyes. Like my pointing my two some eyeballs. generic piece of equipment at it, like yeah. Oh, it's make, beeping more. Okay, make the thing beep. Like, <laughs> like I said, we were literally watching Ghost Adventures last night, and they had a beepy device, and they were waving it around by a candle, and it beeped. And it's like, well, you're waving it by a candle. What are you doing? Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, and then yeah, like I said, you know, there's there's been other. Uh, other other things since then, but you know, none as exciting as a. Uh, a random ghost dude in uh, my hotel room. Yeah. 
I so like I've had night terrors before where I've seen like mm. basically the 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 sleep paralysis demon at the foot of the yeah. bed kind of thing. Um, yeah, I've, and that, I've, I've only that's heard terrifying. stories. Yeah, <laughs> and so as as you were telling me about this, you know, seeing a, a figure at the foot of the bed, I was just like, uh uh-uh, uh, no, oh, no, no, that's the no, sleep no, paralysis no. demon. I don't want to hear about Coming the sleep to get paralysis you. demon. Yeah, Coming to get you. It's like no, it was like a random British dude. <laughs> Um, which again, like having many years now to think about this, since this was like over 10 years ago, um, I appreciate that it was essentially like a nineties or early two thousands ghost, um, and not like the ghost of the Victorian (laughs) child or something like that. It's like, we don't get enough of these like nineties and two thousands ghosts, but you know, we always get like, you know, the civil war widow or the, like the child who died of typhoid or something like that and yeah. you know haunting the house and where are all the 2000s go sad yeah. where, where where are y'all at this guy died on his way to a spice girls show or something like that yeah yeah i mean you know or any other sort of like very average british activities totally <laughs> normal nothing creepy nothing spooky it's just like no he's like waiting for the bus or something like that yeah but, so uh, you've, yeah. you've also seen um, a spooky shrine in yes. Albania, right? Yes, yes. Uh, so I, I'm actually gl- glad I got the, uh, the, the the go-ahead from the team to tell this one um, because oh, nice. uh, it's a fun one. It's it, it, it's a fun mm-hmm. it's a fun and interesting one, and it's just one of those things that makes our our project site and area that much more fun. We love it even more because of this. Um, and uh, yeah, so where we are in Albania, uh, we're up in the mountains, pretty much in the middle of nowhere, um, this tiny little village called Navitsa. And it's, you know, it's, if you're just going to pass through the village, like it's cute, it's quaint, it's very rustic. Um, everybody is doing, doing their thing up there. There's a lot of like artisan crafts. Most of the people there are shepherds in some capacity, um, you know, rural mountain life, totally normal. Um, but for whatever reason, this particular spot in Albania has been a major thoroughfare for humans and human activity for like thousands of years. Everybody passed through here because it was one of the main routes from the coast uh, inland mm-hmm. and, you know, up and down the length of Albania and stuff like that. So back in the back in the BC day, people would be coming from the coast and, you know, Mediterranean, Adriatic, sailing and business and stuff like that. And then you would come inland through this mountain area to get to what is now Macedonia, get to Northern Greece, all of that stuff, and then you know, vice versa. So people have been coming through here for a very, very long time. And this particular part of Albania used to be uh, Epirus, again, back in the BC day. And uh, Epirus had really strong uh, political and cultural connections to uh, stuff happening in northern Greece, and specifically the shrine of uh, and the oracle of Zeus at Dodona, which is in northern Greece. Um, so there's a lot of cultural stuff happening. There's a lot of religious stuff happening. Um, it's super cool. It makes my archaeology heart very happy. Um, this is fully my jam. And what they have just outside the village is an oak grove, a grove of oak trees. So anybody who is a classicist who is listening... This is exactly what you think it is. Oh my God, it's the best. It is a, a grove of sacred oak trees. And in it, there is a little shrine that 
has been essentially a shrine to Zeus this entire time. And uh, the, the local folks still use this space um, for their own things. Um, they, do have, uh, they do have their own activities that they do there. Um, uh, it's not quite, you know, the, the same OG Oracle tradition like it was back in the day, but like they do actually do uh, community rituals. Um, or I guess ritual is the wrong word. They, they do have community events uh, in this space and it's super cool and we love it. And um, they, are, they are a bit sensitive about, about it just because it is something that is special to this uh, specific village and the people. And they, want, they don't want to be seen as you know, uh, weird or superstitious or anything like that, which it totally isn't. Um, and yeah, like I said, we just, we love it to pieces. We love that this exists, that it still exists, that it's still in active use. And um, yeah, it's just a cool little shrine space. Um, it's, it's open air. So, you know, there's, if you want to go and like put some candles out there, you totally can. It's got a nice little vibe to it. Um, and then when the trees are all leafed out, you get the full like sacred grove of oak trees, the wind going through the oak leaves. Maybe if you knew what you were listening for, you could hear a fun message from Zeus. I don't know. I haven't tried it yet. <laughs> um, but it's super cool. It's super, super cool. And so when we took a walk up there in 2017, no, no, 2017, oh my God, I can't math, 2019, <laughs> totally different year. Um, 2019, uh, we took a, took a walk up there to go do a little bit of surveying and um, to take some photos of some of the more notable parts of this little shrine area for research purposes, like we do, because we've surveyed the whole area at this point. Um, and while we were up there, you know, just looking around, doing our thing, measuring our things, photographing our things. Um, I thought I saw something out of the corner of my eye while we were up there, which was kind of cool. And I was just like, what the, something, something small. There were no animals. There were no animals in this area. Um, so that was kind of interesting. I was like, huh, okay, noted. I mean, I had come into this space essentially prepared to maybe like, I don't know, bump into something, maybe feel feel some, you know, shrine vibes or whatever, just cause like it is a sacred space. It's been a sacred space for a very long time and uh, it's an active sacred space. Um, so I was like, okay, all right, noted. Saw, saw a little something, didn't, <laughs> didn't really get a good look at it, but it's like, you know, someone was sort of like, just taking a peek, seeing what was, you know, what these wacky people were doing. Um, and then I think it was William afterwards who said that he heard uh, someone say his name, but like, you know, we, we weren't talking, <laughs> we weren't talking to each other. We were doing, you know, doing whatever it was we were doing. He was like, what the that's okay. And that's, uh, that's our spooky shrine. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's weird. That's really weird. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's cool. I said, I, I love it to pieces just because it's, I don't, yeah, it's, it, it's one of those properly old school spaces, you know, the, the sort of thing where you can absolutely see uh, people coming there, again, back in the BC days, um, you know, if they wanted to either get a message from or maybe get a message to Zeus or something like that, this would be the place to do it, again, because of the very strong ties 
between this area and uh, the major uh, religious center at Dodona. So it's like it all ties together and it's like, oh, it's super cool. This stuff is still around. Yay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I'm not familiar with uh, like classical archaeology as, as much. Um, as you were introducing this sacred oak grove, is this kind of a common feature throughout this region? Um, sort of. Um, so there were a couple different ways you could do uh, your oracle thing if you were trying to do a whole oracle situation. Um, and one of the ways uh, that you could interpret uh, or perhaps come upon um, a message from Zeus, sometimes Apollo, but usually Zeus, um, what, one of the ways to do it was to listen to the wind passing through oak leaves at a sacred grove of oaks. And so the, the wind through the leaves would be the message. That would be the way in which the message from Zeus would be delivered. Um, most people are familiar with the Oracle at Delphi, uh, which is an Oracle of Apollo. Um, and that, that was another, another type of Oracle situation and another way to receive messages from the gods and stuff like that. Um, but uh, yeah, in the classical world, the oracles at Dodona and Delphi were the two most important places in the world. Wow, that's awesome. It's super cool. It's so cool. I love it so much. <laughs> <laughs> so do you have, um, I'm sure COVID has put uh, quite a damper on the field research there, um, but do you have plans to go back um, relatively soon? Yeah, we've got uh, tentative plans for a spring 2022 si uh, season situation of some kind. I guess that it's all heavily contingent upon, you know, what what the world is like um, in, you know, around Easter time uh, next year, um, what the travel situation is like, how all of our respective countries are doing, um, you know, things are things are doing pretty okay, I'd say, in North America. Um, and the rest of my team is in the UK, and so they're having a bit of a harder time over there. And um, yeah, it will all just sort of be dependent on kind of how everything is. But at this point, I am fully going stir crazy now having not <laughs> had any kind of uh, dig anything uh, for two years. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I've got mm -hmm. fingers and toes crossed for a, a spring 2022, uh, field season, because we have a lot of big plans. Um, we've surveyed the whole mountain area around this village. And we have like, I'd say two or three places that we're really, really interested in, um, doing, doing some mm -hmm. detailed work and hopefully some excavating. So Hopefully, the travel and bureaucratic stars <laughs> will align, and we can uh, do a little bit of digging next spring. And yeah, like nice. the fingers and toes crossed. <laughs> nice. What are some of the big uh, research questions that uh, you all have been working with? Um, there's a lot because this whole... This whole area, it, it, it is the, the definition of multi-period. We've got everything from uh, classical Greek and Roman and Epirote 
things, so fully in the BC days, up to you know World War One and World War Two modern conflict archaeology and literally everything in between. Um, wow. Come to Albania, there's something for everyone. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there really is. It's it's awesome. I mean, they've got all these awesome uh, classical sites on the coast. There's modern conflict stuff on the in the interior. Something for everybody. Yeah. Um, I think. Yeah. It. There, there, there's a lot of questions. Um, I think the biggest one is uh, what the heck were people doing up here? Literally all the time. Um, there's a lot of the classical stuff that I'm super interested in. And um, yeah, we're mostly just trying to figure out like what the heck was happening up here? What was going on in this crazy part of the mountains? Um, because we, we've found a lot of really intriguing clues um, and we would like to perhaps find more clues so that we can actually put a puzzle together and figure out maybe at least one event that was happening here. Cause we know, yeah, like I said, we know people were passing through this mountain area all the time, you know, either for trade routes or maybe some armies would be coming through depending on where they were going. Um, we know there were a lot of, uh, I mean, maybe not full-scale battles up in the mountains, but uh, the village and the mountain areas were used uh, defensively during, you know, Ottoman, World War One, World War Two engagements and stuff like that. I mean, we found all their bullet casings, so somebody was doing something up there. Um, yeah, just figuring out what the heck was going on up here and for the, the classical stuff. We want to try to get Albania and uh, Illyrian and Epirote archaeology um, included in the classical archaeology conversation, because this is a weird little corner of the world that we don't know a ton about. We have a lot of mentions of Epirote and Illyrian and maybe some Molossian people and their kingdoms and their things, but we mostly know about them from other sources. So we know about them from Greek sources or Roman sources because they were dealing with these people. We don't have a ton of uh, scholarship from the people themselves. So we would like to uh, change that and hopefully add that to the conversation. I think that'll be super cool. Yeah, that is awesome because Albania is not a place that I would immediately think of when I think of classics, like I said, I'm not very familiar with classical archaeology. Um, I would assume there's also uh, some pretty interesting like Paleolithic archaeology in that region as well. I would think so too. Uh, that's one of those areas where I don't know a ton about, but um, you know, like I said, humans have been there for a very long time. So there's yeah. going to be uh, a little bit of everything from everybody. I mean, uh, yeah, it's so funny. Like from the the classical end of things, I I had known about and then completely forgotten about, and then was reminded of uh, the city of Batrent. That's in Albania, um, and you know of I guess Aeneid and uh, that sort of fame, and maybe it was Aeneid. I forget. Um, eh, Saturday brain. It's one of the classics. Um, <laughs> one of one of those important classical works. Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, that was a hugely important city, and it's just 
chilling in southernmost Albania, being a UNESCO World Heritage Site, just kind of hanging out. Um, and there's a bunch of other cool sites up the coast. I mean, it, yeah, like I said, it's it's an absolutely fascinating part of the world, and they are uh, they are very very enthusiastic about getting Albania involved in basically just any conversations, any conversations yeah. at all. Like they they really want to get their tourism sector up and running because it's gorgeous. It is absolutely gorgeous there. Um, and I think they, they have seen the, they've seen what people have been able to do for Croatia and they're like, we can do that too. We can, yeah. we can do all of that. Um, so they're, it, it's, it's early days for a lot of, a lot of places, but they have big plans and they're really working hard to get a lot of the infrastructure up and running just because they've had a pretty hard time for the last several decades. So they've had a lot to recover from, but now they're really working hard to, yeah, just get infrastructure up and running. And, you know, the biggest, the biggest thing that has happened for us is that uh, the road up into the mountains has finally been completed. So anybody can easily come up into the mountains for uh, a day trip uh, or even a weekend. And that's the whole thing. It's like you come up into the mountains from the coast or from one of the cities maybe, and you get that like rustic mountain experience. You get, you know, incredibly hospitable people welcoming you into their homes, giving you more food than you know what to do with. You get that full rustic mountain vibe, uh, beautiful weather, uh, occasional Wi-Fi. They're, they're working on that, but, um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's absolutely stunning up there and they, they want to share that. They want to share that with everybody. That's awesome. It's funny that you mentioned, uh, that Albania is really pushing on growing their tourism. Um, I've been getting more and more into gravel cycling lately and Albania keeps popping up as, um, kind of one of the hot new gravel cycling destinations, like riding gravel yeah. roads up into the mountains seeing yeah. these you know stunning landscapes and these charming little towns full of you know sheep herders and stuff like that yes that that is a real thing that really exists i have seen it with my own eyeballs um <laughs> yeah their their big thing in the mountains is they're really pushing for um hiking and backpacking yeah. because a lot of the yeah just a lot of the mountain villages and towns really do have spectacular almost untouched mountain situations. Um, the Navitsa has this really incredible canyon that it is literally on the edge of. And so um, one of the fun things for people to do is to do uh, a hike down into the canyon. Um, and, you know, it's a totally easy thing to do. You can absolutely do it in, you know, like 30 minutes. Um, and then when you get down there, there's a whole waterfall, there's this beautiful, pristine blue river. And, you know, depending on the time of year, you can either go like jump in, jump in the river, jump in one of the little pools down there. Um, I mean, tons of nature everywhere. It's also uh, a, what was it? I don't know if it's a nesting site. Maybe it's a nesting site. Their, their other big like nature claim to fame up there is that they have one of the few spots where Egyptian vultures live and so Egyptian vultures are endangered and so they're always on the lookout for the vultures and when we were last there we saw two maybe it was the same bird I'm not sure wow but um so yeah they've got they've got so much going on up there and yeah beautiful beautiful walks and hikes everywhere um 
they're they're working on getting uh, signage and more defined trails set up so people can walk uh, a lot of the trails more easily and or walk or bike, I would think. Um, but yeah, there's yeah. If you're if you're feeling very adventurous, uh, you can absolutely go to Albania now. It's it might be a little too rustic for some people, depending on what your comfort level is. Yeah. But it's it is a stunningly beautiful country. Everyone there is so nice and so friendly. And you know, we've every every season we we come out of there with bags of mountain tea because that's where that's a place where you can get it. That's their whole thing. They have mountain tea up there. Um, we all have like five new grandmas. It's, you know, it's a good time. <laughs> <laughs> I, did, I wasn't aware of the mountain tea, but that's in, that's in like every, uh, gravel cycling kind of promo or photo shoot that I've seen is like stopping into one of these little towns and having tea with some, you know, elder in the town. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, they, they have a, they have a small cafe culture. Um, so yeah, you hang out at the little cafe and, you know, have coffee. Um, but, uh, mountain tea, uh, is, is their, their big thing up there. And it's kind of, it's kind of on the same wavelength as like yerba mate, um, but with uh, a little bit less caffeine. So it's got, it's got some caffeine. So if you need just sort of like a gentle afternoon thing, that's absolutely the thing to do. Um, and yeah, it tastes, it, it tastes super good. And it's one of those plants that only grows at a certain altitude. Yeah. So they happen to be, uh, just below that altitude. So it's easy to go, uh, you know, take a, a hike or a walk or drive up into the mountains and go gather some. And you always see people walking with big handfuls of, uh, the mountain tea plants and oregano because there's wild oregano everywhere. So people will literally just grab a bunch of it on the side of the road and take it home. <laughs> And you got your oregano for dinner. Nice. All set. That's really cool. When I worked in Portugal, uh, there was um, rosemary and lavender like everywhere. Yes. And so I remember would, that from Spain when I went to Spain. Yeah. So we would come down the mountain. You know, we were we were excavating in a cave up up in the mountains. And so on our hike out of the cave down the mountain all of our field gear would smell like rosemary by the time we got back to the van we we're like this is this is nice this is fine. Yeah, great yeah we uh <laughs> we all definitely picked a bunch of lavender and i think there was i think there was oregano there definitely lavender um yeah. and made little bundles and put it you know hung it up in our tents because of course our tents smelled like you know field socks and you know unwashed <laughs> archaeologists yeah but it's cool so yeah everybody come to albania it's a great place yeah, totally. Well, so um, we've got you on Twitter and Instagram at Annalise yes. Bear. Yes. And uh, those those accounts will be linked in the notes below. And then on um, TikTok, remind me again, is it Annalise the Archaeologist? Yes, it is Annalise the Archaeologist. And uh, yeah, that's that's where I am. I spend a little bit too much time on the internet these days because... There's nowhere to go, <laughs> especially if you're an archaeologist. There's nowhere to go right now. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I, yeah, internet, social media. That's uh, that's kind of what I do right now. Well, you're really good at it. I mean, that's that's the thing is like uh, it, you're you're kind of communication style and the things that you share like. Um, it's informative, 
without coming off as kind of like preachy or like, this is a bad thing. We have to do this. It's just like, it's fun. And here's like a cool thing that you should know about. Uh, Cause it's just cool and fun um, and really informative. And so like, I always, I always dig whatever you're, you're putting out on. All That's of the awesome. Platforms. Thank you so much. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I just try to approach the whole thing as if I'm talking to a friend or friends and yeah. that's how I talk. Um, I'm not an academic, so I'm not going to talk at you uh, as if I were a professor or anything like that. Like I, I, and you know, that is one of the skills that I have that works for TV <clears throat> stuff too, which is that I can absolutely talk forever about something that I'm super excited about. And I just talk to people as if they are also people and yeah. try to explain things in ways that a non-specialist person would understand so that they can be as excited about the thing as I am. Nice. Well, it works. I mean, I, I get excited about, uh, you know, the subjects that you, uh, I'm sure you put a lot of time and energy into researching these subjects because it's like, it's very detailed. Sometimes. Yeah. Most of the time it's, it, it, it depends on the day. I can either make something in like three minutes if it's just something that I already know, um, since I have a lot of weird stuff rattling around in my brain, um, or sometimes it takes about an hour if I'm actually trying to research something and make sure that I get yeah. the dates right and find the best photo for the thing. Nice. Well, uh, I, I think we'll call that an episode, but uh, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for joining um, yeah, I'm going to get absolutely. this out as fast as I can, hopefully uh, by tomorrow so that people can enjoy uh, a ghost story on Halloween. Ooh, spooky, spooky yeah. topical material. Yes. And yeah, uh, I have a, a TikTok plan for tomorrow as well. So spooky awesome. content for everyone. Perfect. Awesome. Well, this is so much fun. Yeah, likewise. Uh, so I'll stop recording now.